Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just you forgot to enter. My brethren, I'm home. What's up, my brethren? Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. This is Connor Hallway of the Golden Hours Podcast, and this is a GDP Minute. Now, guys, I'm going to teach you how to fucking hustle, brother. I'm going to teach you how to hustle. I'm out here in L.A. really doing a thing, and I'm trapping this thing out of the Days Inn in Santa Monica. And I just love that, man. You know what I'm saying? I'm out here really trying to make it happen, brother. I'll be honest. I've been out in L.A. uh, past five, six days. Been meeting with a lot of people, and I do think I'm going to shift out here. I'll know tomorrow, but it's definitely the right thing to do career-wise. And uh, I'm ready to bring that Boston hustle to this fucking city and apply some pressure, man, truthfully. I don't really fully understand the game yet. I don't. Um, I know there's a lot of politics involved, but I'm ready to just come here and apply pressure. You know what I'm saying, man? We did it. We've done it out of the dirt for a while where there is no industry. And I am excited to get here and start really stepping on some necks, man. Um, I just, I'm ready for a bigger game. I am. And so if this is the start of the LA chapter, just, I want it to be known. I started at the days in brother, two star hotel, Trapping the podcast out of the corner of the room. And my guy Eric had no clue I was in the days in. Zero idea. But anyway, and I got the other one later today too. No idea I'm running out the days in. The days in. The days in demons. Let's get it. Anyway, uh, so today, you guys remember, if you like the podcast, just share it with a friend. That's all I ask. And truthfully, if I'm keeping it a buck with you, really enjoyed the episode today with Eric. Um, his name is Eric Falconer. He is a writer. I would say his show, Blue Mountain State, is a one-of-a-kind show. It's uh, I grew up on it. I would always watch it at my friend Ian Arthur's house, and we uh, it just I I have really good memories watching his show. You know, it's it's like a real teenage boy show, like just about puberty and chicks and having a good time and drinking drugs. But grew up on a show, man. So it's weirdly full circle when you run episodes like this. And uh, he's a good guy, man. We're talking about the LA hustle a little bit. And, uh, you know, I'm sure I'm hoping he likes my movie when I send it over to him. But he's a hustler, man. Hustled in his own right, was trying to figure shit out. And anyone who can get a show done is a grinder, man. You know what I'm saying? Especially getting something greenlit. That's something I'm going to have to do eventually is like talk to studios and get something greenlit. So it's something I don't understand. And so I was picking his brain on it. But anyway, glad I ran it. I hope you guys like it. Share it with a friend if you really enjoy it. That's the only fee on the show. I'm not running no ads. If I could run ads, I probably would. But anyway, had a quad shot of espresso this morning and I am rolling. All love. Enjoy Eric Falconer's Golden Hour. Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just you forgot to enter. Hi, I'm Eric Falconer. This is my golden hour. Okay, we're locked and loaded, brother. Great. Now, as I was saying, I'm out here in California, and I've been, I don't want to say stalking other men, but <laughs> at 
at least I've been cognizant of other people's beards in this area. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, man, you got something luscious going on over there, brother. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I work real hard at this. Uh, <laughs> is, is it a quarantine beard? <laughs> no, I've had it forever. I've had a beard for, God, I can't even remember the last time. Actually, during the quarantine, I shaved it off. And really? I felt really strange. Yeah. Felt really strange not having one. No, this has been going for a while. Now, when you had, when you were at Emerson, like as a college student, did you have one? Uh, no, I didn't. I actually didn't grow one until I moved out here. Um, what was that, like mid-2000s? around there maybe like 15 years ago dude something about i mean you can't this is like a level one beard but something about having it a beard like, thank good. you man i appreciate it i got the dominicans going crazy on it like every week at the barber shop <laughs> but uh they um something about having a beard just like makes you feel like you're like a man yeah of course of course <laughs> <laughs> um well hey man um I'm very familiar with everything you've done because I grew up on BMS. Like when I, when I was 15, 16 in high school, it was like the first time I had seen something on TV that I was like, that is like, that's the type of genre of something I could make. Like it's doesn't, it's not a crossword puzzle. It doesn't seem too tough. And it's like the, it doesn't take itself too seriously. So I, as I said, I just directed my first movie and I wouldn't have done it without that. So I appreciate it, man. Oh, that's awesome to hear. Yeah. Yeah, man. We like, we, we made Blue Mountain State as sort of like a very straightforward show. There's not a whole lot going on behind it. You know, we tried to make solid stories with solid characters, but really the humor is very like base and simple and straightforward. Just, it was the kind of stuff that we wanted to see on TV at the time. You know, I was going to say, but that's what people want. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And it was it was also it was a weird time when we first were developing Blue Mountain State was like because it premiered in 2010 and we were we were developing it during the market crash around 2008 when when the housing bubble burst and everyone was losing their jobs and the economy was going to shit. And we thought networks were making shows about people being sad, like people losing their jobs. There, there was a show called Better Off Ted and Canned was a different network show. And it was all about like, oh, this is the new American experience. Everyone's miserable and losing their all of their shit. And we wanted to make a show that was kind of the antithesis of that. That was just a celebration of life and, and college and fun. And uh, yeah, that's sort of where Blue Mountain State came from. Well, I was going to say, I mean, from what I understand, you did four years at Emerson. And I was like, where would you get the the experience with like a college football team. Cause that's just like, I don't even know yeah. if they have one. I don't think they do. Yeah. Right. No, they don't have a college team. They don't have a football team, but uh, no, it just came from uh, well, actually the, the genesis of it was that uh, we learned that spike TV wanted to make a college football show. And so we went in and pitched our version of it, which was like, you know, animal house set in division one college football. Uh, and they bought it. Yeah. I didn't have, I didn't know a lot about college football. You know, I played high school football. I paid attention to college football, but I didn't really know a lot. So it was actually, we studied quite a bit about just like the D1 college football, the big time schools, the cultures over there. We talked to a lot of people, a lot of players, a lot of former players, uh, 
dug out a lot of stories from from those kind of just you know interactions. But yeah, we didn't know a lot about. Word okay. Um, peeling it back just a little bit, just for anyone who's going to be tuning into this, can you just uh, explain who you are and what you do? Yeah, my name is Eric Falconer. I'm a writer. Uh, for, I write TV, uh, occasionally a movie. Um, I also am a producer. Uh, I'm from Massachusetts originally. I grew up in Watertown, went to Emerson College, and I've been out in Los Angeles almost 20 years now. Uh, I've worked on, you know, uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and the Sarah Silverman program and How I Met Your Mother and The Mick, and I was the co-creator of Blue Mountain State. Now, where in Watertown did you grow up? I grew up on Union Street, off of Galen Street, near the square, near Watertown Square. I did all of the post-production on our film off of Holt Street. Are you familiar? It's like on the backside of Waverly Square. Oh, okay, yeah. Over by like Belmont, like that area. Yeah, like you know that cemetery? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I lived there for like five months. Oh, wait, yeah, I know Holt Street. I had, I had a really good friend in high school who grew up on, lived on Holt Street. We spent a lot of time on Holt Street. I know, when I'd seen Watertown, I was like, you got to be the first dude out here doing it in Hollywood from Watertown ever. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I know Eliza Dushku is from Watertown. She was, she was a couple of years behind me in high school, the actress. Um. And there's actually, I met a guy out here that I didn't know in Watertown, a guy named Matt Selman. He's the showrunner, one of the big, big uh, writers on The Simpsons. Wow. He's from Watertown as well. A, a lot. So I had Lee Eisenberg, the, uh, the showrunner from The Office on the podcast like two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And he, I mean, he was just rattling off like people I wouldn't even think of who had worked on The Office from the area. Like mm-hmm. writers, directors, producers, set people. And I was like, is that, was that calculated? He was like, no, that was, that was, it was just totally coincidental. There's a lot of New England people out here. You know, I'm, I'm working on a show right now and, and just had a connection with one of the writers that our family members knew each other, just out of the blue wow. from Waltham. My family, my family's originally from Waltham. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of, there's, we have a writer from Rhode Island, a writer from Connecticut, a couple of writers from Massachusetts, one from New Hampshire. There's just sort of a lot of New England people out here. Now, were you commuting to Emerson when you were in Boston from Watertown, or did you have a dorm? I had a dorm. I had a dorm there. Actually, I, first, I went to Roger Williams University for a couple of years in Rhode Island, okay. and then I transferred up to Emerson. And yeah, I lived in a dorm. I lived in a little building, and then I lived on Beacon Street for, for a year. Okay, cool. What did you hate, Roger? Was it not your thing? No, it just wasn't what I wanted to do. You know, I, I actually went to Roger Williams for, I was studying biology. I was interested in science and uh, I was minoring in writing. And about after my freshman year, I realized that I really liked the writing more than I liked the science. So I wanted to switch majors, but their writing program there wasn't amazing. So that's when I switched to Amherst. I went to Providence College. A lot of those Roger Williams kids would come up for like a couple nights and get trashed. Yeah. Yeah, it was a fun school. It's a beautiful place. I, know. Pro- so I love uh, Providence, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I think Rhode Island's like a really interesting state. And um, everyone says about Rhode Island, like, you can get anywhere in 20 minutes, man. You can get anywhere in 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, okay, so, so you grew up in Watertown, went to Emerson, and then 
do you have ideas percolating for shows at Emerson that you're like, you know, I really have this urge to get out to Los Angeles and go produce something, or maybe I want to produce something in Boston? No, it was always, you know, I actually, my interest in college was playwriting. I, I liked like live shows. You know, I did a lot of sketch and stand up and stuff like that. And <clears throat> I liked the live performance aspect. And then um, it was actually my writing partner, uh, uh, who I met at Emerson, Romanski, he moved out to Los Angeles and we had been doing stand-up and stuff together in Boston a little bit. And he convinced me to come out to LA and give it a shot. And I was like, well, yeah, I'm not really doing much in Massachusetts right now. Maybe I'll go check out LA for a little while. And my plan was to be here for like, you know, six months. I was like, oh, I'll go check it out. I'll sleep on people's couches. I'll see how I like it. I didn't expect to like it at all. And then he and I were doing like these stand-up shows and sketch shows. And we got signed to an agency after like, you know, a few months of doing that. And I realized, I was like, oh, wow, we have this opportunity now to try and write professionally, you know? Because I think to me, writing never seemed like a tangible profession. It always, it always felt like, I don't, like, how do you make money as a writer? I don't, it never made sense to me, even after college. Like, you know, I don't think they ever taught me that in college for the business of writing. And, and TV production and, and filmmaking and all that stuff. So, um, so yeah, I came out here, we got signed, we started doing stand-up shows and then we got involved with this, um, this sort of like production called Channel 101 uh, way back when, and where we made sort of mini TV shows, five minute TV shows. That was sort of the premise. And every month everybody would get together and watch each other's shows and vote on which ones we wanted to see more of. And those people would make more shows the next month then. And it was um, it was a really cool group of people. It was Dan Harmon and Rob Schraub created it. Uh, they Dan, who went on to make Rick and Morty and Community and all that stuff, and and Rob, who's done a ton of stuff, Sarah Silverman program. And um, and but it was us. It was me and Romanski. It was Harmon and Schraub. It was the the three lonely only guys, Andy Yorman, Keith. It was Tim and Eric. Uh, it was Chris Tallman. There there was. It was just like a great group of people. And those are the people that I sort of ended up coming up with out here. But no, it was like when I was at Emerson, it was just sort of, I was just following a passion. I wasn't really, I didn't have my sights too much on what my future was going to be with it. I just wanted to get a degree in something I liked. I enjoyed doing, you know. Now to clarify, what does that mean you were signed? Like they gave you X amount of money to produce a show or? No, it just meant a literary agent um, offered to represent us. So, you know, there, there are agencies out here and basically what happens if you're a new writer, if an agent is interested in you, if an agent thinks they can make money off of you, basically they, they sign you, which means they're going to represent you, um, in all matters. And they will sort of introduce you around town to people. They'll, they'll, they'll set up meetings. If you have a script to share, they'll send it out to different productions or production companies and producers and development executives and things like that at networks. And if they like your stuff, they'll, they'll at the very least want to meet with you, get lunch with you, have you come into the office, say hello. So they sort of introduce you around and then they put you in situations where they can get you jobs. So um, now I'm assuming yeah, a, back, I apologize. I'm assuming back okay. when you had gotten signed, it was an absolute necessity to have an agent just because it was standard in Los Angeles. But now with the advent of the internet, can't you kind of just foster some of those conversations yourself? You can to a degree. 
I think, you know, there's agents and there's managers and they used to be the same thing. And now they split up because they, I think they realize they can make more money that way. But I think it's, it helps to have, you know, right now I don't have an agent, but I have a manager and it, it helps in terms of information out there. So if you're a professional writer or director uh, or actor and you want to get a job, they have information on where the openings are you know, oh, this show is looking for this, or this show is auditioning for this, or this show is looking for a director for this series. Um, and they can make those introductions. They have relationships that you might not have. So that's really where the value is. They can put you in rooms that you might not have gotten into otherwise. So but in the part- sure, But for sure, just to answer your question, like, yeah, the internet and the ability to communicate in so many different ways and put yourself out there in so many different ways has opened up what having representation means, you know. So channel one was like for you, it was channel 101? 101, yeah. So channel 101 was kind of like an incubator. Now, where was that? Was that downtown LA? That was in Hollywood. So what are you feeling at that time? Like, you know, I just like came from Watertown. I'm really out here just doing comedy in Hollywood. It must have been awesome. It was just fun. You know, I, I was like, I didn't really reflect much on it um, because it felt, honestly, it felt kind of like a continuation. In high school, I made videos with my friends in the AV department. You know, I wasn't part of the AV department, but they were. And we would write stuff and sketches and film stuff all the time and share it. Um, so it just felt like a continuation of that. You know, it was a lot of like, like-minded people. Um, and there was no... The thing about Channel 101 is there's no money involved. It's completely nonprofit. You know, if you if you need a costume, you're making it out of newspapers or something. You know, it's very it's more about like just fun and comedy and uh, at like the purest level. Production doesn't matter. It's about characters and stories, and it really taught me how to tell a story in five minutes, which is not easy to do. Um, and so that's sort of where I learned. I actually learned more from Channel 101 than I probably did in my college classes about production. Now, okay, so you get signed and then you kind of, you start producing and working on other people's shows or how does the transition yeah. happen? So it was actually, it was my agent at the time introduced me to Channel 101 because he represented those guys as well. And was just like, hey, you should check out these guys and met those guys. And we all hit it off. We started making stuff together and got together all the time. And then Dan Harmon and Rob Schraub created the Sarah Silverman program. This was in like 2007, 2008, somewhere around there. And um, they liked the stuff that Romanski and I were making for Channel 101. So they brought us on to the Sarah Silverman program. And that was like our first... Um, writing credit or our first staffing job anyway we had done we had done an episode of it's always sunny in philadelphia before that and that was like our first my first thing that ever got on tv with that now are you guys are staff writers so you're just contributing ideas rapid fire to the seasoned writers on the show right sort of the sarah Silverman program was a really small room there was only a few right there was like I think just Harmon Schraub, there's probably like seven writers total, six or seven writers. Um, so everybody felt an ownership in that show. It was really, it was really fun. And I was a fan of Sarah Silverman to begin with. So just working with her was really cool and getting to write for her. 
Um, but yeah, it's, it's, staff writing is like, yeah, you're contributing ideas, but you're also helping to break stories. You get to write some scripts, uh, depending on the show and depending on how it's set up. Uh, so yeah, you're, you're fully involved. It's not just like you're there to pitch, pitch, uh, jokes. How fast does this happen for you? Like, is it, is it almost rapid? So like making decisions to like ease into writing made sense for you at the time, or was there any sort of patience involved? Um, just you to give your job. initial shows. Uh, no, it was, I mean, it was a couple of years, you know, I, when I first moved out here, I was sort of like, when I first moved out to, to California, I got a job working at a, a preschool, a therapeutic preschool for kids. <laughs> yeah. For real. It was kids ages two to six who had been through some kind of trauma in their life. And it was like, Oh my God. Their, their teacher was a, was a psychologist. And I was like an aide to the psychologist. So it was pretty wild. And I worked at that for like 11 months, 10 or 11 months. And um, that's why I was, why, while I was doing like the live shows at night, you know, I was, I was doing that. And it was because in Watertown, I actually, I worked in at the water at one of the elementary schools in Watertown when I was in college to like get some extra money. I did after school programs at the, at the school. So I had, I had experience with kids. And yeah, so I worked at that for a little while. And then I was looking for like odd jobs and stuff. And then I was actually back and forth between LA and Watertown for probably two years. Like, and then when I was in Watertown, I would substitute teach occasionally at the, at the middle school or the high school. Just hustling. Just hustling and just sort of like, yeah, figuring it out. Like, I didn't know what I wanted to do entirely. You know, I knew I liked being in LA, but I was like, Again, it still felt like not a real thing to make a living as a writer. Mm-hmm. You know, it felt so distant to me. Um, no, so it was years. And, and when we first started out with Channel 101, like you don't get paid. You're just, you're making stuff in your living room and then sharing it. You know, you're losing money basically because you have to, if you, you know, you're buying lunch for your, for your cast and, and people that help you out with the camera and lighting and stuff. But you uh, realize you had talent at this time, I'm assuming. Like you realize it made sense. Yeah, absolutely. I thought the way people responded to the stuff we were making, um, and it was stuff that made us laugh. More importantly, like we just we had a lot of fun doing it and like doing it. When you reflect, I don't mean to be super fugazi here, but when you reflect, do you believe in destiny? Are you like, wow, I'm, I'm where I should be? No, not at all. Really, I don't no. <laughs> No, man, I believe in, it was a lot of hard work. It was a lot of, you know, there's the old saying that, that uh, luck is when uh, preparation meets opportunity. And I believe that 100%. You know, I had, um, I had opportunities come along that I was prepared for. You know, like when I, when, uh, when I was introduced to people and said, hey, I'd love to read your stuff. Well, I had scripts ready to go. You know, if people said, hey, where can I see your stuff? I, I had videos to send them of stuff we had made. Um, I'd put in that that sort of groundwork so that when those opportunities ar- arose for people to, to see my stuff and to read my stuff, I was ready to go. And um, yeah, and when, when I got an opportunity to be in a staff room or to, or to pitch ideas for a TV show, but like it's always sunny in Philadelphia. You know, I, I knew I'd put in my work on like just how writing a script works. What do you have to do? What are the components? How does it work? And and I put in that that time. So 
Destiny, no, I, I just, I don't. Because I honestly think about like, I could have easily not come out here and I don't know what I'd be doing in Massachusetts. You know, but I really don't know what it is. That's why it's destiny, life. brother. Think about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not like I ended up in LA. You know, I, I flew out here. I actually drove out here. But what compelled you to drive out there? Universal forces, man. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe, yeah. So you're working on a bunch of shows and then you see Spike TV wants to make the football show. So why do you get the job? Like, do you just have an awesome pilot for them or? No, we went, um, we were, they were meeting with a few different people and it was actually a producer named Brian Robbins who, who was working with Spike on the idea. So we went in and met with Brian and we pitched him our ideas, so our characters, um, a couple story ideas, like what the pilot would look like. Um, and he liked our ideas over, the other people he was meeting with. So then he set up a meeting for all of us collectively to pitch it to Spike and to Lionsgate, who's the studio. And um, yeah, and they bought it right away. They bought it in the room basically. And um, and we got to write the pilot. And then it was weird because, you know, we sold the show, they ordered a pilot and then uh, a writer strike happened. And so we couldn't write it. We didn't have the deal done. We couldn't write it because we were, the Writers Guild was on strike, uh, which we were a part of at that point. So, uh, so yeah, it was very touch and go. But we we ended up doing it, yeah. But that's how it came about. So how much did the Writers Strike stall the production? Quite a bit. I mean, the Writers Strike was only for a few months. But we, we literally sold Blue Mountain State. And then the next week, the Writers Strike happened. So we couldn't write the pilot. Uh, that would probably killed you. Like you just it sold your me. first show, dude. And then like, oh wait, now we can't do it. Yeah, pretty much. And it was, you know, um, it was frustrating because we hadn't signed the contract either yet. You know, we had just sold it verbally, but we hadn't signed any contract. The lawyers hadn't gotten involved in any of that stuff. So we didn't know if when the writer's strike was over, if this show was, they would still want the show because it's so, things are so fluid and unpredictable. You just never know. Um, but luckily they did, you know, they, the second the writer strike ended, we were able to write the pilot and get it into them within like two weeks. Um, but Dude, then it I would have been losing my mind. It's like yeah, your it big sucked. moment. Yeah. <laughs> Dude. It sucked. It was real. It was real tough, but it was, you know, and then even once we finished the pilot, it still took another like six months for them to commit to shooting it. You know, we were just sitting there with the pilot script and they liked it and they were talking about, yeah, 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 we're going to shoot it. But then like, you know, the summer went by and then the fall went by and then we're in the winter. Like, are we actually shooting this thing? Like, what is going on? And eventually finally they're like, yeah, we're going to go up to Canada and shoot it. We ended up shooting and shooting it in, uh, in Montreal in the dead of winter. Oh, God. The Mount State pilot. It was brutal. <laughs> and you shot the rest of the show up there too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we shot all three seasons up there. Was it advantageous to shoot in Canada? Or why was it? At first, yeah, because of money. So it was the the US dollar was really strong when we first went up there uh, versus the Canadian dollar. So you stretch your dollars farther up there. And then also Quebec had a really good tax credit, a tax rebate for productions. If you hire crew and cast out of Quebec, you get uh, a refund 
off of what you pay them. So that's why it was up there. And um, but then you know the when things the economy started to collapse at one point, and it was like the U.S. dollar became less valuable than the Canadian dollar, and then that became a problem where we had to slash our budget to shoot up there because it got more expensive. But that's the reason why it was just it was just an economic decision by the studio. Now, do you have any say in the production? Like, they're like, all right, we're thinking about shooting in Canada. What do you think about that? Or they're like, all right, no, you guys are going to go to Canada to go shoot this thing. Yeah, we don't really have a say in where it gets shot. Okay, we I can understand. we can say you know, we can tell them our preferences, you know, but we we really don't get a say in that. They're like, no, we're gonna production is gonna start at this date in Montreal. Um, yeah. The studio decides all that stuff, production. Got it. Um, now, at what point did you develop Thad? And who and how did you develop him? That was early on. That was that was just sort of like when we were first thinking of like the show. And um, he was like a mixture of all those villains that I loved from those 80s movies. You know, like Johnny Lawrence and the Karate Kid and uh, Roy Stalin from Better Off Dead. Just like the blonde douchebag villain that everybody hates. And then um, when we cast Alan Richson in the role, he brought it to just like another level where he was like goofy and just sort of like, like a, almost like a psychopath element. <laughs> that we hilarious. And yeah, yeah, he brought, he brought so much out of that character. But yeah, that was the idea. We just wanted a classic villain, you know, in the show. You know, what's so crazy is for years and years, I've been calling people bro beans and I, and I had no idea where it came from. And then I was rewatching yeah. stuff and I was like, oh shit, it was that who said it. Like I called my friend yeah. bro beans yesterday. I'm not even joking. Like, what's up bro beans? <laughs> How are you bro? It's contagious, right? We, we wrote it as like a, uh, as a joke thing that like, that would say but then we found ourselves saying it all the time yeah it is hilarious and um it is it rewarding for you seeing his career like blow up now he's like the biggest actor ever oh yeah awesome yeah we've been I, i'll tell you like the whole the whole cast for blue mountain state uh we all really uh have supported each other for you know since that since back since then you know, we have worked so closely with Alan and Darren Brooks, who played who played Alex, and of course Romanski played Sammy. Like we we all like have rooted for each other in big ways. You know, so to see Alan have this kind of success, I kind of kind of knew it was going to happen. He's so talented and tall, uh, handsome, tall, handsome guy, <laughs> and he he beyond all he works harder than anybody else I know at what he does. Like he is a truly committed guy. Um, so yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm so happy to see him get this reacher job. Yeah. Well, I, so I, everything started for me is when I was in college, I started making YouTube sketches. Um, and I just hustled, learned how to edit myself, just started making stuff. And then I made a film and then I left, started the podcast, made a movie. But I would have never started making YouTube videos initially if there was no Jimmy Tatro. So when I saw him in the movie, I was fucking pumped. I thought he was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, that seems amazing. 
yeah, we were, I was, I was happy he, he agreed to do the movie because I had, I had met him through other producers that had sort of put us together because of, you know, the, the stuff that he made, he was making, everyone thought it lined up with Blue Mountain State. So we had, we had been introduced by other people and had developed a couple of things before. And then, so, well, yeah, when we ended up doing the Kickstarter movie, I, I, we brought him on and he was, he was uh, nice enough to do it for us. Yeah, it made sense. He he started out doing a lot of frat videos and mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. He's just so he's just like one of those guys that's just naturally funny. I know his Simi Valley show is hilarious. Have you seen Simi Valley? Oh yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. I love it. I actually met some dudes from Simi Valley like three days ago. And they were like, oh, really? Yeah, we were yeah, I met at a party and they were like, yeah, they're like, yeah, we work at our uncle's um, body shop. And I was like, dying. I was like, this is ridiculous. Um, so the show's successful. Now, why did it get yanked? Blue Mountain State? Yeah, off Spike. I never, we never got a straight answer on that. It was, it was really strange. We did the three seasons. Um, the ratings were ascending. You know, we were, we were gaining audience every season. And uh, it was, I think it just came down to an economic sort of battle between Lionsgate and Spike. You know, I think, I think it really came, came down to like just money and not a lot of money, you know, because originally what we had heard was that we were getting picked up for seasons four and five. I was like, great, that's great. When can we start writing? And they were like, well, we're, we're, we're just trying to like iron things out. And then time passed and I was like, if we're writing two seasons, we need a lot of time to do that because they wanted to shoot four and five together over one summer. Uh, and then they came back and said, okay, well, we, sorry, we're taking so long with all the, the money stuff, the budget stuff. We're just going to do a season four and then we'll figure out five down the road. And it's like, great. When can we start? And then another couple months passed. And I was waiting for the official announcement. And then I got a call that they were just pulling the plug. And I think it was when Lionsgate and Spike were trying to figure out their budget. um, They couldn't, they couldn't come to terms basically is what I think happened. Now I'm sure, you know, the show has a cult following now, but at the time, at the end of the third season, were you gaining like a really loyal audience? Oh yeah, definitely. Okay. Definitely. It was, it was always tough to tell because it was, it was, um, you know, it was on Spike TV late at night and then it was on Netflix right after that. So Netflix doesn't release numbers. So the only numbers we really had to go on were the Nielsen ratings for Spike TV at like 11 o'clock on Tuesday nights or whatever, whatever it was on. Uh, but even just by those Nielsen ratings, those live viewers, like we could tell, that there was a there was a real audience there, you know. Um, I think it was at the end of season two when we we did uh, we did the riot episode, which was like our finale for season two, and our ratings like shot up, like almost by a third, and that's wow. when we realized, oh, like people are tuning in; they wanted to see this finale. Like people are invested in the series, you know. So yeah, we could tell. So as soon as they yanked the show, you're like, well, I know people like this. So I was going to, the way I was going to ask that question was going to be brain dead. 
let me rephrase it so I sound a little more professional. Um, you know that you have an audience, so you say, okay, a movie makes sense down the line. Mm-hmm. So that yeah, was always I mean, an idea. It was always an idea. I mean, we, we had hoped that the series was going to get picked up again because it just it felt strange the way the way it ended and we knew that it was a show that was gaining an audience um and so we talked initially about a movie we're like what if we just did a movie and sort of you know see how that goes Lionsgate had said they're not interested in a movie they'd run their numbers they they didn't think it was worth to do a movie and I don't know this this there's kind of a long answer to how the movie came about. Do you want to hear it or do you, do you want the short version? I know you got a like 2 million crowdfunding, right? We did. Yeah. I mean, what happened was Alan Ritson and Ed Marinero, who played coach Daniels, they went to Lionsgate and basically were like, if you're not going to make a movie, give us the right and we'll go make a movie. And at first Lionsgate was super reluctant, but to their credit, they like, they just hammered them and hammered them and hammered them. And finally, Lionsgate was like, fine, stop bothering us here. If you want, you want the rights to go make a Blue Mountain State movie, have at it. We don't care. And signed over the rights to, to them. Uh, and then through another long process, there was, you know, talks with producers and financiers and all of this stuff, but it never felt right. Um, and that, that's a whole, I could write a whole book about that period of our lives. But uh, eventually we decided we were going to try to crowdfund. Yeah, and so we started Kickstarter. We raised about a million, just shy of, what did we raise? Shy of $2 million? I think just shy of $2 million. Uh, and then off of that, we were able to get financing from other people, and we were able to make the movie. Yeah. So you had a few private investors on top of the two mil. We did. We had, well... That's a whole other thing. Like we we had an investor that was going to match our money, and then they backed out at the last second. We had a falling out with them, and so Lionsgate came in to buy the distribution rights from us. They're basically had to buy back the rights that they had given to us. Now that we had raised all this money, which felt pretty good, uh, so they bought that. They bought the distribution rights to the movie, and then we used that money to finish the movie is basically how how we ended up funding it. Wow. You got it done, though. We got it done. It was tricky, you know, because people don't realize the, the show was an expensive show for basic cable. It was, you know, it, I mean, I think it showed up on the screen. It, it looked great. And the production, you know, the people we had and, and the production side of things were, were serious pros. Uh, so to make a movie the movie the money that we had to make the movie was about what it would cost to make two episodes of the show and you know so if you look at it that way each episode is about 22 minutes so for 44 minutes we we would uh the budget would be the same that we had to make a 90 minute movie uh so we had to figure that out like how are we going to make a a feature length blue mountain state for this money you know um, and so we ended up having to, to sacrifice a lot of the stuff we wanted to do. You know, we wanted to show bigger football games and like, but that stuff was so expensive to shoot um, that we ended up cutting it and just sort of made it a party movie. Where did you shoot it? Was it South Carolina? 
uh, ended up being North Carolina. We flew down to South Carolina, and then the state would not approve the movie because of the <laughs> content. <laughs> you know, because they have a uh, religious state. They have a tax man. credit there, and they and they were just like, nope. And we sent them a version that was more like PG thirteen, and they were like, still like, nope, you can't shoot it here, or you can shoot it here, but we're not giving you money. Uh, so we just moved up the road to North Carolina, and they were they were fine with whatever. Now, do you think the show would be greenlit today? Mm-mm. Absolutely not. No shot. Absolutely not. No, not at all. No, I think it's um, no. There's no other way to say no it. Way, no way, dude. There's no way. That's There's awesome. You got it in in the golden era of TV when people weren't as <laughs> sensitive. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, it wasn't, yeah. Yeah, there's no way they would make this show today. Who was the the Harmon character based off of? That was like one of my favorite episodes <laughs> is when, is it the drug Olympics? When he has like all the drugs out? Yes. Yeah, Harmon, Harmon was like, um, God, who did we, uh, Janikowski, that kicker for the, who used to kick for the Raiders. We sort of like, he was our prototype for that character originally just sort of like a mess of a human being that happened to have this gift for kicking a football. <laughs> you know? um, and then when we, it was actually Rob Ramsey who played Donnie, he auditioned for the Harmon part initially. And we felt like he wasn't quite right for the part, but we loved him. So we created the character of Donnie for him specifically for that actor. And then we found James Cade, who was, who's a small guy doesn't read necessarily in real life as a football player but it's such a weird character that we thought he would be perfect for it and so we we cast him yeah that was the idea is just a degenerate just i love i love the idea of a degenerate in in like a d1 big time program you know yeah i mean there's millions of those out there right now like there are a lot and i'm watching the ncaa tournament i'm like there's no way after these guys got their tournament bid, they weren't like calling up shorties and partying. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Uh, so what does the next couple of months to years look like for you? Got any projects coming up you're working on? Yeah. I just started on a new project here actually now I'm, I'm in the offices now for that. I'm, um, it's not going to come out for about a year, but Romanski, my ex-writing partner created a show that just got greenlit by TBS called Kill the Orange Face Bear. And uh, we just started writing that like seven weeks ago, eight weeks ago. Um, so it's me and him and we, we have the writing staff here and we're going to shoot that in Vancouver this spring. Nice. And it's, it's half live action and half CGI. So that's why it's going to take forever. We're going to have the live action shot out by July, but the animation, the CGI and stuff is going to take around nine months after that so it's it's not going to premiere till probably march madness of 2023 wow yeah what is the basis for the show it's a comedy but it's about a guy who's who's out on a hiking a camping trip with his fiance his girlfriend he proposes to her and she gets attacked and eaten by a bear and then this guy goes on uh this mission to find and kill this bear that ate his fiance it's about, it's about a guy who's obsessed, almost like Moby Dick, but in the woods. Um, but the animation comes in where it's, you know, 
there's also the bears are 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 animated and so you see things from their perspective and they have their whole clan in the woods trying to figure out how to navigate the situation too uh now you had the, whose concept was this was it yours no this was romanski's romanski created the idea sold it to tbs it, it was a long road over like four years it took him to get the greenlit um and and then it got greenlit and he brought me on so i just started on this in like in january nice now in terms of you working with romanski are do you guys normally split producing duties in terms of communicating with the studios or do you have a strong suit in most of the creative stuff and he does a lot of the selling uh we work in tandem when when we work together you know it's, it's like you know um do you mean as far as like pitching stuff or once we're yeah. in production in pitching stuff no we we would when we're pitching together we we pitch together like we develop a pitch exactly what we're going to say how we want to approach the pitch and then we sit in the room together and and pitch it out okay cool noted yeah all right man well hey i had a blast yeah man thanks it was, it was nice meeting you um all right man so this is how we start in the episodes you got to say hi i'm gonna say this once eric okay okay you got to say hi your name and this is my golden hour directly after no break in between the two sentences hi your name and that was my golden hour okay let's say hi i'm eric falconer and this is my golden hour hi i'm eric falconer and this was my golden hour you blew it. Absolutely blew it. That's Shit. <laughs> no, it's Shit. this is this is that was. That was. Okay. I'll be honest, dude. I've run this with like politicians, athletes, everyone fucks it up. All right. I can just go whenever. Do your thing, man. Hi, I'm Eric Falconer. This is my golden hour. Hi, I'm Eric Falconer. That was my golden hour. Well executed, brethren. Thanks, man. I used to act, you know. That's why. You're a thespian. I am. All right, man. Hey, thank you so much. I'll uh, yeah, I'll send you a follow up email. I'll get your address, and I'll I'll shoot you a clip from our movie. For sure, man. I would love to see it. All right, dude. Thank you so much, and thank you for making great stuff. No problem, man. Nice meeting you. Uh, have a good day. All right, brother. Talk to you.